Welcome to the Bold Love Podcast here with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Our goal here on the podcast is to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, to better love your neighbor, and how to learn to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. My name is Josh Tate. Hello again, and I am so pumped to bring you season two of the Bold Love Podcast. What a wild ride it has been so far from launching our very first season last year, and so glad that these discussions have been so well received. Man, we were blown away by the response during season one of the podcast, and I don't know if you know this, but it actually peaked the charts around the world in the religious and spirituality charts at like number eight in Finland and the top 30 in multiple places around the world. And it even topped out at number 211 podcast in the United States in the religion charts. So we're extremely thankful for listeners like you that have downloaded it and listened and continue to do that. So thank you so much. And we're so excited to continue on in season two, where we will be continuing to interview people from a wide range of faith backgrounds to talk about the importance of living out your faith outside in the public square and society and peacemaking and how faith directs their work and what bold love means to them. So this season, we will focus on how the past few years have brought such tremendous polarization in our country and the world. And we ask, how do we repair this polarization? What do we do to better relate to one another. So the theme of these conversations for season two that Pastor Bob will be having discussions with will be surrounded around mending the divide. So get ready, buckle up, and we hope that you come on this ride with us. But before we dive into the season, just a quick reminder that if you're new to the Bold Love podcast and haven't heard any of our nine episodes from season one, don't miss those. And they can be heard on your preferred podcast player or at Bob Roberts Jr. Com. We had guests like Dr. Russell Moore and Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and Imam Omar Suleiman and Beth Moore and so many more great guests from season one that you don't want to miss out on. So to kick off season two, we're excited to have this episode with our friend Dahlia Mogahed. Dahlia is the Director of Research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, where she leads the organization's pioneering research and thought leadership programs on American Muslims. Dahlia is the former Executive Director for the Gallup Center for Muslim Studies, where she led the analysis of surveys of Muslim communities worldwide. So we'll dive into with her some of the data that she's seen in her research in the past and most recently in regards to Islamophobia and how Muslims are treated in the U.S. and how different tribes respond to the recent polarization and the importance of faiths working together in the public square. So we're super excited to bring you this conversation with Dahlia. So for full show notes and links and details about this episode, you can always go to BobRobertsJr.com. That's BobRobertsJr.com. I hope you enjoy this episode of Season 2 with Dahlia Mogahead and the host of the Bold Love Podcast, Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. I am really excited to have one of my heroes, Dahlia Mogahead, uh, on our Bold Love podcast today. I've had the joy of knowing Dahlia for about 15 years. She's a big deal. She's at Gallup 
And so I was beyond excited when she agreed to be on our podcast. Uh, she's a real deal. Uh, she's a woman of integrity and she's extremely smart. And so we're going to have some fun today just talking about issues between Muslims and Christians and society as a whole. So, Dahlia, I want everybody to know just a little bit about you uh, being born in Egypt, coming to the U.S. Just tell us a little bit about your formative years and how you got to where you are. Thank you so much, Bob, and thank you for having me. My background really uh, started in, in Egypt. I was born in, in Cairo, and I came to the United States with my parents when I was five years old. Uh, they came to the U.S. as graduate students, both of them pursuing PhDs in engineering, and uh, that's what brought us to Madison, Wisconsin, from Cairo to about one of the coldest places in the U.S. And, How old and were you when you came? I was five. I was in kindergarten. Do you remember so, the cold from the heat? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, huge contrast. And uh, and there were a lot, and one of many, many huge differences between um, a huge city in the Middle East and a, and a college town in the Midwest. But that's really my story, I guess. It's It's the story of these of seemingly opposite things, but being, um, living, you know, being reconciled within me. And, and I feel very comfortable being both from Cairo and Madison, Wisconsin. I, I identify with both places, uh, very comfortably. And I think, you know, me and people, a lot of people like me, I'm not, I'm not unique in any way, are, are kind of a testimony to the, to the fact that these ideas that a lot of people make out to be opposites, to be in, in conflict, um, are not, are, are, uh, are very easy, easily <clears throat> reconciled. And, uh, and in fact, I don't, uh, I don't feel any tension within myself between, um, all of my different identities. And, and so growing up in Madison was a wonderful experience. I, I attended, uh, public school K through college and uh, and really was raised in in a in a place that was very open minded, very diverse. Uh, even though it was a small town in in um, in Wisconsin, but it was a college town, so it attracted families from all over the world. Were there many Muslims there, or were you like the only Muslim in the public school? What was that like? There were not a lot of Muslims at the time I was growing up. I was one of very few. Um, so I had friends from every faith and no faith, every background, every nationality. It was uh, an experience where I both was not, I, I was a one of only a few Muslims, but I never, at least in elementary school, never felt out of place just because of the, the diversity of the student body in my school. How did you get into the work that you're involved in today? Well, Bob, that's a really long story, but Can you give um, us <laughs> the, the short version is um, I've always been passionate about social justice and just justice in general. Um, everything from, you know, being a little kid on the playground and sticking up for someone who was being bullied to, to experiencing bullying myself. I just... I always had this visceral gut feeling that I was, I had a purpose to, to fight for 
the the oppressed to to try to do whatever I can to make things right if if they seem in, you know unjust and unfair. And as I grew up and kind of gained political consciousness, I started getting involved in different organizations at my school. Uh, started to learn about the civil rights movement. Then realized that you know Islam had something to say about that, and and even had a role to play in our civil rights movement, which was like a a radical moment when I found that out. And um, and I went to college and and studied something completely unrelated uh, to my work now. But um, I was pursuing these this passion in my extracurricular activities with my student activism. And uh, and then eventually my professional life and my, my activism kind of melded, came together when I uh, was working at Gallup, which is when I met you, when I had the opportunity to meet you and to meet John Esposito. So I was, um, I was at Gallup as a consultant and then started doing work on Muslim populations around the world where I was able to do research on public opinion uh, of Muslims, wrote a book, uh, co-authored a book with one of my one of my heroes, uh, Professor John Esposito, and uh, really the less the rest is history. From then on, this has been my my bo- both my core passion and my profession. Do you think Christians and Muslims, especially evangelical Christians and mu- Muslims, do you think we can get along? I absolutely think we can get along. Um, I mean, you're a testimony to that. You know, I know some of your best friends are Muslims, and they would say the same uh, of you. I mean, one of my teachers, Imam Majid, considers you one of his best friends, and I know that from from him telling me. Um, So, of course, of course we can. Uh, And I think it's actually a very natural friendship. And, And the reason it's a natural friendship is because Muslims and, and evangelicals are uh, two groups in the United States that uh, kind of run up against um, the mainstream in some ways, which tends to be very secular, uh, tends to put God to the side, tends to live life as if there is no afterlife. And we have this radical notion that that there's an all-powerful God that uh, sees us, cares about us, loves us, but at least for Muslims will hold us accountable uh, for our, our deeds in an, in an afterworld. So um, those ideas are uh, different for many peoples, uh, for maybe the majorities sometimes. Um, America, although is a religious country, but is, beca- is becoming more and more secular. Um, more and more young people aren't identifying with religion. So we, we have this, um, <clears throat> this area of commonality, and it's, and it's actually what animates both of our you know, so many of our uh, our our lives are Muslims and evangelicals, according to our research. So we do we do research on both communities actually in our in our work um, at ISPU. Uh, we have an annual survey where we ask uh, the identical quest you know the identical set of questions to people of lots of different backgrounds, including Muslims and white evangelicals. <clears throat> And there are these commonalities of, you know, religion is an important aspect in in, in our lives, both of our lives, and uh, it animates our our perception of the world for for the vast majority of us. I've been amazed. We actually share many of the same moral views and how we see mm-hmm. our morals, our values, 
uh, things that we believe. And I've thought so many times, if evangelicals only understood Muslims, we could have a powerful alliance uh, to accomplish things that we agree on. Why do you think it's so hard mm-hmm. for us, Dahlia? Uh, I, I, I'm going to be very honest with you. I think the bigger challenge is the evangelicals, as I got to know Muslims, I don't think they understood evangelicals were mainline. To them, I was just a Christian. Uh, wh- why do you think it's hard for us to get along sometimes? Why do you think we fear <clears throat> one another? Well, the reason is because uh, evangelicals are misinformed about Muslims. I mean, I- I'd love to say we were also misinformed about evangelicals, but the, the truth is, and I'd love to be you know, politically correct about it or whatever. But the truth is Muslims actually have a pretty positive view of evangelicals. And that's the maybe the surprising thing, maybe to some evangelicals, I don't know. But when we ask, you know, Muslim communities to rate their favorability of evangelicals, it's actually pretty favorable. Uh, But when you ask evangelicals to rate their favorability of Muslims, it's extremely negative. So there isn't this, that's not an asymmetric uh, it's not a reciprocal um, animosity at all. It, it is a one-way animosity. And so I think there's a lot of work to do. And that's why the work you do is so important, Bob, because there's just some, I think, just some misinformation yeah. uh, on the part of many evangelicals. And um, and then there's the issue of Israel. You know, I think that that's, a, that's an issue that right. we have to be honest about and, and forthright about. Um, I think that gets in the way of uh, of a lot of this, at least according to many of the, the folks I've talked to, is they say, you know, that's fine, and you guys are, you know, you, you believe in these things, and maybe we have some other things in common, but we draw this line um, where where they feel that because of their support for Israel that Muslims are the enemy. Right. You know, Dahlia, I think two things. I think, first of all, as evangelical pastors get to know imams in their church, and the mosques start doing things together, it's amazing how quickly those relationships form. Because all that misinformation, mm-hmm. it's like this big lie, if you will, right. that evangelicals have heard and they believe that all Muslims are bad and, and want to take over America and they're all extremists. And then when they realize that's not true, it's, oh, my word. And you know what I'm also discovering? On the Israel-Palestinian issue, I'm meeting a lot of evangelicals that are saying, yes, we need to support Israel, but we shouldn't have to do away with the Palestinians to do that. I'm seeing some rethinking <laughs> there. And I'm seeing some Muslim leaders that are saying the same thing. Uh, we want Palestine to, to be a state, but we don't have to destroy Israel. So I'm actually optimistic over the next few years. We may even find some common ground in the whole Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And uh, that's what I'm excited about. Dahlia, something's going on with evangelicals that is amazing to me. Uh, some of the things that I heard Muslims say for years, I'm hearing the same things among evangelicals. Here they are. Let me just list them for you and let's talk about them. I'm hearing uh, evangelicals say that the extremist QAnon followers, the conspiracy theorists, I'm hearing mainline evangelicals say these extremists have hijacked my religion. And I've heard Muslims say that for years. (laughs) I'm hearing evangelicals say that they're concerned about Christian nationalism. 
you know, historically, we like the separation of church and state. Uh, we don't want mm. the state telling the church. And most of the Muslims I know that have moved here, they don't want mm-hmm. Sharia. And they want to live their Sharia, but they want that separation. Uh, and then the extremists. I mean, we get really upset now that there are extremists. We saw it at the Capitol, and that broke. Most evangelicals' hearts were broken by what they saw. It, it broke mm-hmm. their heart. <clears throat> saw Christian flags and and uh, people praying uh, in the name of Jesus in the Capitol. You know, all of those things very disturbing. And then another thing we're going through right now is the whole issue of women. There's a lot of evangelicals that are saying, "Hey, look, it's fine for men to lead, but does that mean?" Women can have a role. So these four things are really hitting evangelicals hard right now. And I've heard the Muslim imams that I'm friends with and the Muslim friends that I have, they've been dealing with these issues for years. What would you say to that? Right. Uh, give, give us, how, how have you, as, let's just start with that first one. Uh, our religion has been hijacked. Any advice on that for us? How do we <laughs> differentiate our faith between the extremists, because I'm sorry to say the Christian extremists, chances are if they go to a church, it's going to be an evangelical church. Come on, what can we do? Help. <laughs> well, Bob, it's it's hard because it, it's not an easy solution at all. Um, a couple of thoughts, though, uh, are this. You know, first of all, I've always argued against the idea that Islam's been hijacked. And I say that because Islam is alive and well and very safe in the hearts and minds and lives of 1.8 billion people. And uh, the folks that have, uh, you know, decided to, to deviate from the faith and act in ways that are antithetical to the faith, they haven't hijacked anything. They've, um, they've jumped off the ship completely. They've deviated. And and as a result, they uh, they're just simply misled, and and so I, I wouldn't give them that kind of weight or uh, or credibility that they that they were able to hijack uh, our faith. Our faith is doesn't belong to us; it belongs to God, and and God will keep His faith um, safe, and, and so. I think we need to almost reframe the way we think about these things. You know, evangelical Christianity in some ways, uh, you know, has some things in common with Islam in that it doesn't really have, you know, a single authority like um, like the Pope who can sort of speak for everybody and say, this is what we believe. Right. And so you have to do the hard work of educating folks on, on the mainstream normative views of your faith. Uh, and there's... There isn't just one voice that gets to do that. So it's a harder process, perhaps, a, a more, um, you know, a more iterative process. But the first, the first step in that process is to, is almost to, to reframe and to take back the narrative around, uh, around your faith. And, and the biggest thing is that those extreme voices or those deviants are not the majority, they're a fringe group. And you, you have to keep reminding everyone of that and not allow them to uh, claim legitimacy when when they really don't deserve it. The second thing, though, is um, is you got to build alliances with, with other people that, uh, that 
that are committed to the common good and to fairness. So I've always complained about the idea of collective guilt and collective blame. Um, I shouldn't have to apologize for something I didn't do. And, and I would never ask anyone else to apologize for something that they didn't do. So I won't, I won't blame everyone. I won't blame all evangelicals for the actions of, uh, of some extremists um, or some deviants. And I don't think that it's the responsibility of every individual evangelical to apologize for, on behalf of these people. And so I think, you know, having one objective um, set of standards and, and, and building alliances with other people who understand what it's like to be collectively maligned is going to be really important. Uh, because I, I've been, you know, I've been asked by lots of evangelicals throughout the past 20 years, you know, why don't you do more to address your extremists? Or why haven't we heard you uh, condemn terrorism loud enough? And, and now I hope that there's greater understanding of how miss, um, how, how wrong it is to really think this way. Collective guilt or collective blame is just inherently un, un, um, unethical, but it's also quite offensive. If I, you know, if I know you, Bob, or, or anybody, if I assume that you agree with an act of terrorism, you know, carried out by someone who happens to share your faith identity, unless you convince me otherwise, you have every right to be offended by that. It's a, it's incredibly insulting for someone to um, to feel like they are a uh, they condone murder unless they prove otherwise. That's that's not fair. It's not fair for anyone. So I just hope that this is an this is a learning moment. It's an opportunity for for introspection and for uh, real alliances that can be rooted in um, you know objective standards and fairness. What about let, let's talk about women for a minute? Uh, okay, I'm just going to be blunt with you, Dahlia. I honestly sure. think evangelicals and Muslims, now you can disagree with me, uh, I think both of our faiths <laughs> teach a high view of women. Uh, I've, I've got okay. four translations of the Quran, all right? I have a <laughs> Quran class. I'm in with Imam Majid. That's right. But I think sometimes the people of the faith take more extreme positions on women than your prophet and our Savior take and mm -hmm. our holy books teach. Uh, so sometimes I do get concerned as we're moving into the 21st century. I mean, you're a very educated woman. You're one of the top Islamic leaders, uh, thought leaders in America. And you can't have religious opinions. You can't read the Quran and give your views. You can't uh, teach. I'm bothered by that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Have you felt mm -hmm. that or not? No, I mean, of course, this is the... So let me back up. Um, there, there are, of course, people who, who would... Uh, who would interpret um, my faith to exclude women from um, religious scholarship. But I would argue that they would have a very hard time explaining the thousands of, you know, women who have been... Um, part of religious scholarship since 
since the beginning. So this is just a historical fact. Muslim women have been interpreting the Quran and uh, re- you know relaying hadith since for fourteen hundred years, and can't that can't be unwritten from yeah. from the history books. But it doesn't mean that they're not up against um, a certain bias in some places. Of course, that's the case as well. And, and when it comes to um, just space and access sometimes in the mosque, it, it can be an issue. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the faith is not the problem. Uh, but the way that some people are speaking for it can be. And what is necessary, I think, is folks like you and others to just keep speaking truth to power when it comes to this issue. And sometimes it's not popular. Sometimes, uh, you know, I know a lot of folks in, in both of our communities feel attacked and bullied by what they deem to be um, an excessively permissive left um, or, or a progressive movement that's lost sight of family values and, and uh, you know, even the concept of gender being a real thing, right. a biological fact. So because of this sense of being bullied by, by the left, anyone who sort of is is perceived to be making um, a, an argument that is reflect that, that, that the quote the left has or has made in terms of, especially when it comes to women, is is then bullied by their own people, by their own community, and so it is it is hard sometimes for people to speak truth. Um, you know, I I am inspired by a verse of the Quran that uh, I think captures this idea really well. It says. Stand witness for justice, even if it's against yourself, your family, your kin, or rich or poor. And it it takes into this account that sometimes the hardest people to stand up to are the people closest to you. Yeah. I think I I get frustrated sometimes because I have this faith that I love and this Jesus that I just absolutely love. And I think sometimes, uh, for whatever reason, uh, in evangelicalism, we, we get so nervous that somebody's compromising the faith that we would rather lean too far harsh uh, than to than to give space. And I've almost come, I'm 63 now, Dahlia, I'm getting old. I've almost come to the conclusion I would rather give too much permission and, and mm-hmm. fix that than to not give permission and people be held you know, in a, in oppression. I've seen more damage, uh, in my opinion, at least in my faith, by people holding yeah. things with too fight a f- tight a fist than too light. Mm-hmm. So you do all this research. I mean, you've got numbers. Every time you do a report, I download it. I read all this and I use it in some of my lectures and some of my talks. What does it mean, Dahlia? I mean, when you look at all the what if, I'm just curious, what have you learned? Okay, great. 53% of evangelicals think X, and they don't have this relationship. What does it mean when it's all said and done? What are some lessons you've learned? Have you, have you come to the point where you've said, in a lot of my research, here's some conclusions. I think actions that we can take to do things. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I know. I think what we've learned is that 
religion's not the problem. And, and I think that that's maybe the headline here. Because no matter how you slice it or dice it, what, uh, what predicts Islamophobia, what predicts um, views that are, are negative of Muslims, etc., are, are, is not religiosity. It's not being devoted to your faith. It's actually a much more, uh, it's much more likely to be a partisan or a political ideology that predicts that kind of view. So I think that's, a, you know, there's some good news there that our faith is, is not at the heart of this. But how do we fix it? And even though religion might not be the problem, it could be the solution in some ways. Because we found that one of the most powerful ways to, um, to eliminate or to protect oneself against Islamophobia or, or harboring Islamophobic views is not only to have a good Muslim friend, that, that is a good way, but it's actually less powerful than knowing something about Islam. So learning about the actual faith, more than just liking a, you know, a person who happens to be Muslim, but learning about the faith itself can be one of the most powerful ways to protect oneself against the bias of Islamophobia. So that's my, um, that's my advice, really, is li religious literacy is incredibly important in today's world. And, uh, and especially for people who say that religion is an important part of their lives, they owe it to themselves to understand from scholarly sources, not from the Islamophobic, you know, um, internet, but from scholarly accurate sources, what people believe, what other people believe. Yeah. I was reading a verse in the Quran the other day and I had to call Majid and, and ask him about it. But it's it's a beautiful verse. And literally what it says is uh, when you see people that are hurting, they're hungry, they're suffering. When you see an orphan, don't push it away. Because as you kneel, so are they kneeling. And the idea is as you're praying, they also are praying. And you can't pray alone. So the idea is don't just pray about yourself and just care about yourself. There's a lot of hurting people, and I love that. And I've uh, I've read the Quran, I don't know, three or four times now. And I'm amazed at the values, the stories. There's some differences in our stories. Not a lot, but there are some differences. And obviously yeah. we disagree about Jesus. But the reality is, uh, somebody wanted to read it the other day, a pastor, and he said, how much would I disagree with it, Bob? And I said, probably... Most of the stories are accurate. There's going to be some differences in how we, you know, our New Testament and the Quran is different. But I, I told him, I said, probably about 97, 98 percent of it, you're mm. fine with it. It's just a story and its values and its, its lessons and so forth. And you're right, Dahlia, when somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I want to read a good book on Islam. I never recommend a white Christian book on e Islam. I don't. I have a good friend, uh, and she wanted. She came and she actually uh, recites the Quran. She's a young lady from Syria. My wife and I met there about eight years ago. Her mom actually has a seminary for, or used to, seminary for women in uh, in Syria. 
And so she came to our church, her and her husband, and stayed with Nikki and I. And so she said, I really want to read something about Christianity. So I took her in the Christian bookstore. And no sooner had I taken her in, I thought, oh, man, I wish I hadn't done this. Because there was a section on Islam and Muslims. It was just harsh. You know, it was it, mm-hmm. it was not good. So I agree with you. And uh, Daniel uh, Langford, who works with us, he's got this goal. He says the goal ought to be not to have to go to Google or not to have to look at your Christian source, but to pick up the phone and call a Muslim and ask them. You know, what do you guys mm-hmm. believe? Hey, you said this. You said, let me give you one of your quotes. It's a good quote. It says, while religion has the power to inspire, legitimize, uh, and manipulate, a new study shows that it has little bearing on political positions. What's that about? That's a powerful statement. Yeah. Well, we got, you know, that statement is about the fact that when you crunch all the numbers, how folks vote, believe it or not, um, or or their views on a lot of different political and social issues is independent of their level of religiosity. So there are religious people with, you know, progressive views on politics, and there are religious people with conservative views on politics. And it's not based on how often they go to a religious service or how important religion is in their lives. It's much more driven by their partisan identity. And that surprises a lot of people uh, because the idea is that the left is all secular and the right is all religious, but it, it end, ends up not being the case. Um, and, you know, what's really interesting is one study found that among conservatives, so just within the conservative kind of grouping, those who believe in God more tolerant. Oh, okay. More tolerant of other faiths and other uh and other races. They are not more tolerant of the LGBTQ community, but when it comes to faith and race, religious conservatives are more tolerant um than atheist conservatives. The most wow. hateful people against Muslims are atheist conservatives. Really? Religion essentially is a temp- tempers people's antagonism toward people who are different from them in terms of race and, and religion. So that's what I, that's what that meant. It's, it's actually born out of numerical analysis that religion is not at the source of this. It's more of a political issue. Hey, uh, you said something curious. That you just uh, opened my eyes to something. Atheist conservatives. What's that? Yeah. I've never heard of those guys. I, be, I thought it was liberal <laughs> atheists. What's what's a conservative atheist? Oh, they're they're very um, they're a very interesting group. Uh, they're they're atheists with conservative views. They're atheists who want small government and um, hate immigrants and believe a lot of things that conservatives believe, but they don't believe in God. That's fascinating. Okay, I got to Google that group. Uh, what are some of the most startling things maybe that you've uh, learned in the last few months? H- have there been any stats or anything going, wow, I didn't know that, or that is unexpected? 
Well, I think one of the most surprising things for me is um, to learn more about Trump supporting Muslims. Oh. So that that's a group that I find very fascinating. Well, tell, tell us about them. And what, are, what are they like? <laughs> Well, what's what was so startling, I guess, is that they're exactly like Trump supporters in general. I mean, they hold the same views. They have a lot in common. In fact, interestingly, they are even more likely um, to hold Islamophobic views, even though they are themselves Muslim. Wow. So, yeah, I I think that, and and that's a larger group than we thought. How large um, is Trump what percentage of, of Muslims but, in America? Would fit in that category. Around around thirty five percent of Muslims voted for Trump. Wow! So a full third. I did not know that. That is fascinating. What? What? <laughs> anything else? Like that's pretty interesting. Anything else like that? Yeah, that's that's probably my number one. Uh, you know, biggest issue. Uh, the other, I, I think, some of the other things that I was surprised by um, when we looked at our research is are some issues that I thought a lot more evangelicals would agree to. So um, religious freedom. So we, we asked a question about what coalitions do you want your faith community to build uh, strong, stronger ties with? And I thought, of, you know, the vast majority of evangelicals would say that they want strong ties with uh, groups that um, work for religious freedom and work for uh, and and work for uh, anti-abortion um, activists, and the numbers were were a majority, but they were you know fifty percent. It was not as strong as I expected. So that wow. and and very similar in the Muslim community, um, kind of a split almost down the middle on some of these questions, where I thought there would be a lot more uniformity. All right, Dahlia, I'm going to ask you several questions. In just a moment, you can just, you don't have to give me complicated answers. But before I do that, I want to give you an opportunity to do something very few Muslim women get to do. I'm a pastor, an evangelical pastor. Do you have anything you want to ask me about my faith, my culture, anything? Uh, no limits. And I may not know the answer. And I may just have to say, Dahlia, I don't know. I'm going to have to get back. But anything you're going, I'd love to ask him this. Or I'm curious about this. Ask me anything you want. You've been gracious. I've, I've, I've uh, peppered a lot of questions. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. Um, what's one thing that you've observed in the Muslim community that you wish evangelicals would be more like? Prayer. That's easy. I love the way uh, Muslims pray. Now, Imam Majid, I tease you. Because he's always saying, you know, Bob, we have to pray five times a day. You Christians don't have to do yeah. that. And I told him, no, the Apostle Paul told us to pray without ceasing. I wish all I had to do was pray five times a day. I have to pray all the time. I was, <laughs> I was just teasing him. But I love Dahlia. I think that's why your faith is strong. That's why you guys are so mm -hmm. hard to convert. It's your prayer life. I'm convinced of that. <laughs> it's because here's what I believe. I honestly, as an evangelical Christian, I believe God hears us when we pray, no matter who you are. It's absurd that he would not. And so uh, for me, I think the way mus Muslims pray is is very uplifting. And, I, and I'll give you a second thing. 
uh, and a lot of evangelicals don't realize this. Muslims, the Muslims that I know, are pretty compassionate people. Uh, they give money. Now, maybe it's just the Muslims that I know, all right? But humanitarian mm -hmm. causes, helping the poor, uh, trying to deal with that. Uh, Muslims are pretty generous to me. Now, I've also learned that most Muslims in America, they're very wealthy. They're highly educated. A lot mm -hmm. of people have the idea that uh, Muslims are not, and that's just not true. Those two traits. Those two mm -hmm. things I really admire about Muslims. Prayer and generosity. Thank you, Bob. That's very, very, uh, very insightful. And I... I absolutely agree with you regarding prayer. It's um, it's absolutely my lifeline during my day. So, um, you know, Dahlia, it, it's, I, yeah, I would, I don't know what I'd do without it. It's real funny. So when uh, I first got to know Mus Muslims, uh, was in Afghanistan, and mm -hmm. so I was literally in the desert, and I'm not going to tell you where, but not a safe part. And I was there with Muslims. And uh, they would pray. So we would stop as we were traveling and they would throw in the desert their rugs. And I was impressed with this. And the second day of traveling with them in the desert, they threw their rugs down and I thought, I'm going to pray. I'm not, I don't understand how they pray, what they're praying, but I'm going to get on my knees and pray too with them. So I did. You know what they did, Dahlia? They got a blanket. They stopped. One of them saw what was happening. They stopped their prayer, and he motioned to one of the guys. They got me a blanket, put it right beside them, and in the desert, we three or four people prayed together. Now, I, I didn't know Muslim prayers, so I wasn't praying Muslim prayers, but I was moved at that. And But I learned also, Muslims pray like us. You know, we I like to say as Baptists, we freestyle. So we don't have formal <laughs> prayers, but like every morning when I get up, I spend one hour to an hour and a half praying and reading my Bible. But then during the mm -hmm. day, like before we went on this podcast, I was praying. So God be with mm -hmm. me, help me to ask the right questions, be with Dahlia, help us to say things that will help people. And so I don't know. I just think there is a, uh, I think there's something happens when people pray together. I, I really do, Dahlia. I've told Christians. I, I agree with you completely. In fact, it's even it's scientifically proven that when people synchronize in prayer the way Muslims do, where they prostrate all together and, and you know in unison, that their hearts, their heartbeats become synchronized. Really, that's an actual medical fact. Yeah, there was a hidden brain art uh, episode about it just last week. I was uh, overseas with Majid. We're, we travel all over the world, but uh, many months ago, and I had something very tragic happen in my life while I was overseas, but didn't want to tell anybody while I was there because I had to work. But I told him, and he prayed mm -hmm. for me. He just stopped. He said, we're going to pray right now. It was very moving, and every day he would come up to me because he knew what I was going through. I'm going to pray for you. It, I don't know. I never had somebody of another faith pray for me for something personally. It was very profound. I, you know, I used to think, Dahlia, God only heard the prayers of Christians like me. Where is that in my, in my Bible? 
<laughs> Nowhere. As a matter of fact, there's only one verse God says he doesn't hear a person's prayer. And do you know who, the, who prayer that is? It's the prayer of a believer who's a hypocrite. Hmm. That's the only place. But I thought, boy, you have to agree with what I believe for God to hear your prayers. I just don't believe yeah. that anymore. I think when somebody's hurting and they call out to God, even if they don't pray right, even if their theology is not right, Jesus healed people that didn't believe right. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to do away with all of his miracles and all the good things he did because most of us it's a, it's a learning journey. So, I don't know. All right, right, let me ask you some fast questions. What does love your neighbor mean to you? When you hear that phrase, love your neighbor, it's in Islam too. What does it mean to you? Not going to sleep if they're hungry. Not going to sleep full if they're hungry. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this storytelling journey on the Bull Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. and Dahlia Mogahead. If you enjoyed this episode or, or found this podcast helpful and intriguing, we would love for you to give us a review and subscribe on the podcast platform that you're listening on right now. Doing this will help others find their way to these discussions. You know, helping place a review positions you as the one that helps others decide if they want to take time to listen or not. So doing this actually helps listeners around the world connect with this message. So please drop us a review and subscribe. And it would be very helpful for us. And you can be a part of helping spread the message of bridge building and peacemaking. So thank you so much. We appreciate you. And remember at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, how to better love your neighbor and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. We'll see you next time.